Hi, I'm Ralph Powell, co-founder and CEO of Real Vision. Thank you so much for listening to the Real Vision podcast. At Real Vision, we pride ourselves on providing the best in-depth expert analysis available to help you understand the complex world of finance, business, and the global economy. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll accept my invitation to try Real Vision Plus for 30 days for just $1. Visit realvisionpodcast.com today and join us as we navigate the financial world together. Cheers. Three hundred and sixty-three days ago, under dark, dreary skies, somewhere between fifty and a million people gathered in the mall in Washington DC to watch the inauguration of the forty-fifth and most unlikely president in US history. Having dispatched every challenger in an unlikely run to the nomination, and subsequently survived a cascade of negative publicity and a seemingly never-ending litany of scandals, the Republican nominee had then somehow triumphed against all the odds defeating a member of one of America's true political dynasties in an upset the likes of which has never been seen before in a major Western democracy. Since that gloomy day, the 45th president's first year has lurched from one seemingly incomprehensible event to another and been marred by infighting, sensationalist headlines, larger-than-life characters and scandal. However, he has passed the biggest corporate tax cut in history, appointed a Supreme Court justice and set about implementing the policies which saw him elected, including, it seems, building the famous wall. Now, after the hirings and firings, the tweets and the turmoil, it's time to take an objective look at the first year of what, in many ways, is the most remarkable presidency in US history. This week, on Adventures in Finance, taking stock of President Donald J. Trump. Today is the 18th of January 2018 and welcome to a very special episode 50 of Adventures in Finance. We made it to a half century. Uh, in the Cayman Islands is producer James. Jimmy, 50 up. Boys, it's, it's, it's an achievement, uh, you know. It's quite something. All those who were short at 12 are having to cover. That's I the main thing. You were the only one short at 12. <laughs> Come on, that's not fair. Uh, in New York, we have Alex. Alex, your second episode with us. Welcome. Uh, thank you very much. I'm having a, a great day up here. You're having a great day. Now, how, what's the temperature in New York? Oh, well, it's, it's absolutely unlivably freezing. But uh, I did get a nice little follow on Twitter today from at AIF James. So that was very exciting. Ah, he's, he's branching out. This is, yeah. this, is, this is a rather nasty little echo chamber you two are creating for yourselves. You want to be a little bit careful with that? Uh, I mean, I think, you know, judging by everything that we've been discussing this week on the podcast, uh, I, it only serves its purpose, I guess. Well, in talking about that, the, the subject at hand for this week uh, is the first anniversary of the Trump presidency. Now, before we go into that with our guests, the wonderful Pippa Melgren and the fabulous RP Eddie of Ergo, uh, a plea to the audience out there. Now, there is going to be plenty in here that you will hear that you will not agree with, I'm sure, because it's impossible to talk about the Trump presidency without stirring tensions. But I would urge you to to listen to what RP and what Pip have to say. Uh, we've tried to do this in as even-handed a way as possible. They both have plenty of uh, experience 
And so hopefully you can listen to this podcast in the spirit it was put together, which is one of inquisitiveness and just trying to get a sense of what's going on in Washington and how the people in and around the presidential circus are really feeling about things. But before we get into that, it's time for our long shorts. Now, I have uh, cheated a little bit and I've, uh, I've combined my long and short, so I'm going to let you go first, Alex. You can, you can pick a long or a short, um, safe in the knowledge that I've only got one today and I'm probably going to get on my soapbox about it. Bit, bit of a perestrade there. Okay. Yeah, something uh, like that. So I am long felons. Felons. There was a really nice, uh, honestly nice, uh, story in the Times, New York Times uh, over the weekend about how people with criminal records are having an easier time getting jobs as the labor market tightens. Um, which is great. I, I think a lot of people have been concerned with uh, people with criminal records having a difficult time getting jobs. It, not that surprising. Uh, employers would rather not hire someone with a criminal record, but it contributes to recidivism and, and it's just a bad thing for society. So we can get these people uh, not committing new crimes and instead making rivets or something like that. It sounds like a good thing to make. Well, it's, it's interesting. I wonder what the legalization of marijuana does to that particular sector of the jobs industry. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's a serious question. I don't know, but I'm sure that must have something to do with it. Well, it, it's very interesting because the story was all about the tightening labor market, but I think there actually might be something else going on, which is that there's been anecdotal evidence from a lot of manufacturers and stuff that it's hard to hire people who don't have a problem with opioids as opioid addiction rises in the U.S. tragically. And if you've been in prison for two years, it's probably hard to score opioids in there. So maybe maybe these people are are, are not using, and that makes them more appealing. Well, kind of a dark twist I, there. But I also read something this week about um, Colorado and people finding it actually difficult now that marijuana's been legal in Colorado to to find people who will pass a drug test because you know people mm. haven't gotten rid of drug tests yet. Um, that's still to to be done. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. I hadn't really thought about it. You'll have to send me that article to read. Yeah, we'll do. Well, my, my long and short, um, I'm going to combine them. I am, I, I'm long and short Bitcoin this week. And, and the reason I'm long and short it is I wrote uh, my Things That Make Go Home, which I put out uh, on Sunday, this, this past Sunday. And I wrote about Bitcoin. I've had so many people asking me about my thoughts on Bitcoin. And, you know, whilst my technological knowledge and my technical knowledge of the blockchain is adequate. It's certainly not uh, at the level where I'm any kind of useful input for people. Um, I understand it enough for me, but not perhaps for other people. But I simply wrote about the price of Bitcoin. And, you know, to me, here I go again, the price is a stone cold bubble. And I wrote that uh, in the piece, but I qualified it by saying, you know, once the price gets back to uh, you know, a more sustainable trajectory gets back to closer to fair value and the froth goes out of it. You know, this is revolutionary technology that will change the world. And now it's here, it's here to stay. There's no two ways about it. So I'm very pro blockchain and I'm very pro Bitcoin at the right price. But because I called Bitcoin a bubble, the vitriol that was unleashed on me on Twitter was absolutely remarkable. And, you know, it, it, it made me think, first of all, I'm amazed that people can be this angry when they've made a couple of thousand percent it does make me wonder what uh, what their mindset's going to be like if they're actually uh, some of the people who bought it at 20,000 and it's now down at 11. Uh, I can understand that. But again, it's it's this lack of discourse, and I'm sure we're going to get onto that in our conversation about the Trump presidency, this, this unbelievable 
pick a side. If you think Bitcoin's the bubble, I hate you, I can't talk to you, you're an idiot, you have nothing useful to say. Um, and, you know, the people that saw the, the chart I, I put out, which is a, a chart of the classic bubble wave with the Bitcoin price overlaid almost perfectly to it. Uh, nobody bothered to ask what my conclusions were. They saw the chart that I tweeted out, assumed what my stance was, and just went for me. Uh, the phrase I used was poking an angry badger with a spoon. And it just it just amazes me that, uh, you know, th there's just no willingness to have a debate, even about Bitcoin, uh, and we'll get on to President Trump shortly. Um, so to those uh, cryptomaniacs out there who saw me post that chart uh, and have now, you know, burning effigies of me, um, my stance on Bitcoin is that the technology is revolutionary, the price is a long-term buy, but at these levels, and it seems to be bearing that out at the moment, it just feels a little frothy to me. So please don't hate the messenger. Let's all get along and let's just discuss Bitcoin the same way hopefully we can discuss the Trump presidency in, in an atmosphere of balance and reason. So there is my soapbox plea for the week. I'm long and short Bitcoin. You know, here might be your problem is that if I bought Bitcoin and I made tens of thousands of dollars, if it's just in a bubble, then I was pretty much lucky. But if it has a real fundamental value, then I'm a genius and I'm rich because of my own intelligence. But it depends, right? If you've if you bought them and you've sold them, then you are a genius, right? And you've got the profit to prove it. If you bought them uh, and you held on to them and they halve, well, you know what? Maybe you're just angry because you didn't get out at twenty thousand when when people were telling mm. you then it was a bubble. You know, I, I, look, I don't know. I've I've seen bubbles. I understand the mindset in bubbles, and, and when you get in them, all the people who are long refuse to see it and all the people who missed out will call it it's mm. just the way of the world and um you know it, it doesn't mean to say that you know i wish everybody all the luck in the world who's long bitcoin i hope it goes to a million and you all make a fortune i'm definitely not wishing you bad luck it was just an observation on the price uh, and to me the price is a stone cold bubble anyway look let's not let's not poke the angry badger with the spoon anymore let's get on to to your short alex and please don't tell me it's bitcoin no, no, no. I am, I'm short something more mundane. I'm short reality. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, so my short idea is inspired by a story uh, recently came out in Bloomberg that during the CES conference, uh, which we recently have in Las Vegas, uh, I'm quoting here, representatives from major players like Apple, Facebook, and Google met with suppliers that make the nuts and bolts required to power AR glasses. According to people familiar, smaller firms like Snap and uh, China's Xiaomi also met with potential partners. Uh, basically, this whole augmented reality thing seems to really be taking off. And soon people are going to be walking around everywhere with these glasses on their heads that show them different versions of the same world, uh, different, more exciting, perhaps, versions, which means that non-augmented reality, also known as reality, could be in some trouble. Well, true. But, I mean, whatever happened to Google Glass? Yeah, it's it's a good question. You know, you know there have been a lot of failures, and and I think the there's been a lot more pessimism about virtual reality, where you give people a completely different world. But it seems like people like just a just a touch of reality with their fantasy. So there's a lot more hope about <laughs> oh, augmented dear reality. God. Oh man, where will it end? Well, <clears throat> I don't want to sound like a dinosaur, but augmented reality. Well, James, if you could augment your reality, what what would what would that consist of? And make you make you better looking. Well, that wasn't exactly difficult, <laughs> let's face it. They come up with something a little bit of a stretch for the Apple engineers. Oh, I know. I think uh, they'd find that hard enough. 
Mm, yes, well, well, look, that concludes our long, short segment of the week. Um, feel free to inundate us with uh, views on what an idiot I am about Bitcoin. Um, I've enjoyed reading them all so far this week. But it's time to move on and jump into our feature discussion of the week. Now, today is the 18th of January. We are two days shy of the one-year anniversary of the inauguration of President Trump. So we figured it was a good time to check in and get some opinions and kind of grade his first-year scorecard. And to do that, we're joined by two special guests, uh, both of them Real Vision favourites. First of all, R.P. Eddy, the CEO of Ergo and the author or co-author with Richard Clark of Warnings, Finding Cassandras to Stop Catastrophes. And an old favourite returning, uh, Dr. Pippa Malmgren, the founder of H Robotics, the author of Signals and the CEO of the DRPM Group. They're going to join us to talk about President Trump. So first up, we're going to go to R.P., who's in New York. RP, welcome to Adventures in Finance. Great to hear from you again. Hey, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me back. So we're two days ahead of the first anniversary of President Trump's inauguration. I thought it was a great time to to grade his first year. Uh, it's been it's been tumultuous, and there's been an awful lot of press. Um, it's been unlike any presidency I've ever seen. Um, but you know, in amongst the madness, there there has been some some progress. I mean, a lot of it's come late in the year. So I just wanted to kind of get your sense of, of how you'd grade his first year, and perhaps perhaps get a little bit of sense of what you think he's done right and where you think he may have done better. Well, thanks. I it has certainly been a fascinating year in, in many accounts, um, not just because of the president. Actually, it's been it's it's been a pretty bad year for the world as well, um, but. I think the best way to think about this is to understand what expectations were of his presidency first and then think about where we find ourselves now. And um, if you go back and look at some of the work that we've done with Real Vision before, we talked about expectations for this president being extremely low. And and there's just a thousand ways to look at and a thousand ways to understand who he is. But I keep coming down to a comment from my grandfather, which is character is destiny. And it's, you know, it's one simple comment. But I think it speaks a lot about what we were going to expect, what we did expect from his presidency. So if you if you think about a man who had comported himself the way Donald Trump had, and I think it was it took a lot of digging and understanding and awareness to understand who Donald Trump really was versus who Donald Trump appeared to be as the campaigner or the rally TV star or the quote unquote billionaire. And you know, those of us who were lucky enough to you know maybe be working in New York, and I don't think it took too much insight, we're able to understand really what he was. So knowing who he was, this presidency is unraveled, or unrolled, excuse me, very much the way I thought it would. Um, in practice, I think we thought it would be kind of an amateurish group initially, um, and probably fro- prone to attempts to kind of fool uh, the populace, um, so sort of amateur and fraudulent. In policy, I think domestically, we thought we would see a rise of populism and nativism coming out of the White House. We certainly have seen that. We obviously knew domestically he would pick a Supreme Court seat, and I think he made a good choice. Um, we thought that he would move very quickly legislatively because of the control of the House and the Senate. And uh, that's where maybe we were wrong. He, he did not have nearly the legislative success that he should have had, um, nor that we thought he would have had. And by success, I mean towards his own agenda, not towards the greater good. The reason for that was because of the Freedom Caucus and the Tea Party. Um, he did, of course, pass that tax bill, and we'll get to that in a second. We thought he would go for a large defense buildup. He's not really been able to do that because, again, legislatively hasn't been able to pass a budget. And then internationally, as we discussed with Jawad, 
we thought that he would end the really put a nail in the coffin of what we call what is called Pax Americana, which is the, the, the U.S. leadership that has steered the world so extraordinarily for the last 75 years and steered the world and us and that this presidency internationally would be the one who gives up American leadership. So as to expectations, I think he's, he's really done what we expected. The market response has obviously been positive, but as we talked about, we always thought there would be two years or so of good market response. You know, first, there's obviously larger trends at play and corporate earnings that have nothing to do with him. But the, the work to minimize regulations and now this tax bill is nothing short of a fantastic boon for American corporations and the American uber-rich. Um, so that's going to increase corporate profits and, and increase valuations, and there's probably no reason – well, there are reasons, but on that basis, the market will probably continue to chug along. Um, so that's generally how I think we did. Now, I mean, there's – what you hear me not getting into is this tweet and that tweet and this stupid comment yeah. and that stupid comment, and um, and – I think it's worth making one comment on that, too. The other thing that's kind of amazing, it's very human, um, and again, I think we've talked about this before, but is the idea of, of building up a tolerance. And so we now have been punched in either the arm or the jaw or the nose by this White House so many times. And I don't mean from a policy perspective. I mean just hearing the White House say things we're not used to it saying right. and supporting itself in a way we're not used to that I think we've built up a bit of a tolerance to how absolutely absurd some of the behaviors have been. So um, now, that's all looking backward. Well, let's, yeah. let's, just, let's just stick on that for a second, because the, the, this I find uh, very, very interesting, because it, I think you've absolutely hit the nail on the head that this idea that we get desensitized to it, uh, I think is very, very important, because it, it seems like the, the tweets are getting crazier, and the reaction is getting more muted, which I find very, very interesting. And you know, and I, I travel around the world a lot, and this is something that this whole discussion about about President Trump, the man, n- n- never mind the administration. Um, you know, it's one of those conversations that you can't really have in a balanced way with people, which I think is a great shame. Um, but when you travel around the world outside America, people looking in, um, they are utterly baffled, completely perplexed, whether it's Europe, whether it's the UK, whether it's Asia. Nobody has any clue what to make of him. And, and you know, I wonder if that's deliberate or I wonder if that is just a complete side effect of, of Donald being Donald. So let me make three points. The first one is uh, people have got to stop thinking that a lack of organization amongst the executive team and the lack of organization in his mind is deliberate. It is not deliberate. And I have extraordinary insight into the way this White House is operating and the people operating it. Um, and I get to pick up all sorts of things that haven't made it to the press. Um, although I will say the Fire and Fury book told a lot of the secrets I already knew. So, so maybe now we all can go read the book and you can see what I was sort of peering into. This is not... There's no deliberate strategy here for, for example, for the president to go off and say a bunch of very hawkish things about North Korea while Tillerson goes off and tries to have a conversation with North Korea. That, that's not a strategy. Um, and, it, and I know that. So none of this is deliberate on his, on his part. This is a man who doesn't have, I won't say 
focus. I mean, he knows what he's doing, I presume, but he doesn't, he doesn't think the way I think I do and many other rational people about how you, how you meter out your messaging. Um, and now just go back very quickly and think about the successes that he had in his life, right? I mean, he did become profoundly successful. He's a president of the United States. He did make hundreds of millions of dollars and live like a big time billionaire, even if he didn't actually have billions. Um, and that whole time he did that, he had the same personality and was calling up journalists and pretending to be a fake publicist for Donald Trump named John Miller, when in fact it was actually Donald Trump trying to be somebody else. I mean, he's acted absurdly and immaturely, and et cetera, his whole life, and it's in his one and one and you know, so far, I mean, he's the president of the United States, right? So it's gotten him somewhere pretty profound. He's not going to stop now. But it's not deliberate in the sense that he's trying to hide his cards. It's deliberate in the sense he's doing it and intends to do it, but it's not because he's trying to steer us in a different direction. So that's one point. The other thing about desensitized, desensitized, if you as a leader of any sort are desensitizing people to your message, you cannot be as effective a leader. So if you in the office start running around and telling everybody they do a great job, they do a great job, and you pat on the back all day, all day, all day, they're not as interested in hearing your praise anymore, or alternatively, if you scream at them all day. And when, you're, when you think about national leaders who have, desensi- who have had a desensitized populace, you, you start telling very scary stories of leaders who are able to create demagogic leadership that led to often fascism or other kind of leadership we don't want, totalitarian leadership. So desensitization is something we have to be sensitized to, <laughs> if I can say that, right? Right, right? We have to be sensitized to this, and we have to realize that this man is still the president of the United States, as ludicrous as a lot of the stuff is that he says, we can't just roll our eyes. Um, and for the first year, we could kind of... I took a lot of solace in the way the American machinery held up in the first year, right? Different, the, the tripartite system worked. The judicial branch resisted some of its crazier influences. The congressional branch, let's say, branch, as I was saying earlier, surprised me by, by resisting some of its impulses. Um, and the, the wheels of government, you know, kind of kept him from being too destructive. But he's going to get better at this, and the people around him are going to get better at this, and he will learn how to make the wheels of government work better for him. And I'm not sure that I'm really excited about whatever his long-term goals may be, because I don't think he knows what they are either. Yeah, in terms of that behavior and policy point, um, it, I, I'm reading that book as well, the, the Fire and Fury book, and it, it is amazing how all the, the chaos and the strange messages that we've gotten through Twitter and press conferences and, and which the market has kind of shrugged off and it, it it seems like the market's saying, well, that's just the way he communicates, and then there's the way he does things, which has been everything that's actually come out of the White House policy-wise that has gone into effect, rather than executive orders that have, have been washed away, seems to be you know relatively what you'd expect, relatively stable and, and very friendly for stocks. It and, and reading the book, and 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 I know you, you know more than than's in the book even, but there is an implication that that's only because of the way the, the White House has gone about making policy decisions. In, in other words, there's no reason why the policies have been so orderly other than perhaps they didn't know exactly how to enact some of these other policies they wanted to enact. I, I guess just to put a bit of a finer point on it, um, is there more risk of a huge policy misstep 
than we might think. In other words, the the sort of chaos that that we felt in at least the communication could that translate into policy more readily than it has already, or or is there really some kind of a wall between them and investors and and really every citizen around the globe? Yeah, yeah, great question. Um, there is uh, in domestic policy. Basically, the areas where the president has the capacity to do things um, with more fiat is where you should be more nervous. So if you look at the the stock market six months ago, I think you could make a very cogent argument, and I did as well, that there is nothing that's going to hold this market back for the next six, nine months other than a North Korean crisis or some black swan we can't see, right? And so then you get to the question of, are we going to go to war with North Korea? Right now, everyone feels, oh, gosh, it's all been solved because they're sending uh, 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 Olympians to, to, to North, South Korea. And like all of a sudden, the problem's not a problem. It's still a problem. And it's not a problem just because North Korea is full of horrible, you know, people who treat their people like food stock. It's a problem because you have a president of the United States who... who is rattling the cage of the bear constantly, in this instance, Kim Jong-un, and could get us into a nuclear war when we don't need to be in one, right? sort of by mistake. So areas where he has more fiat to get things done more quickly, I think you have to be, you have to be concerned. And that, in my mind, was the only major thing on the economic kind of you know, uh, tail risk issue for a long time, nine months to now. And I, I, by the way, I'd say from now until, was it February 28th, last day of the Winter Olympics, so probably be a straight bull line until then, you know, on generally global stocks, because everything is kind of good. It's going to be good through the Olympics. And, you know, if you could make money just trading one thing for the next, what is that, you know, 40 days, that's what I'm doing. I mean, I think things are going to be just terrific until the end of the Olympics or right before. Um, and, and that gets back to, again, not just Kim Jong-un, but also the president, Kim Jong-un, but also the president. So things where he, he can do things on his own, you're a problem. Other problem is when we aren't desensitized to him, when he does say things that are dangerous or threatening to other countries, that can be misinterpreted. And I think we kind of started walking down that path with Kim Jong-un when he said, I'm going to go send four missiles to Guam or do an atmospheric test, right? Now, thank God he said that, or he threw that out there to say, if you're going to keep threatening me, then here's what I'll do back to you. And then everyone you know, said, whoa, 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 calm down. China grabbed him and said, don't you dare do that. And other people told him to calm down, and he did. Um, but he wouldn't have gotten to that point if he wasn't sending tweets back and forth with the President of the United States. Now, uh, uh, there are people out there now listening to this, uh, I feel certain, who who have their view of President Trump, and if their, pres- their view of the President disagrees with yours, they've immediately written what you say off as, as one of those guys, right? Uh, which I think is such a great shame. You know, here we are having a rational conversation about – Let's face it, uh, a group of facts that are pretty apparent to everybody watching. And and as you said, I mean, he's the most powerful man in the world. So we have to try and maintain some balance and try and get some perspective on what this means for the world, not just for financial markets, but for the world. You know, how do, how do you see when you talk to people, how do you find having that conversation, trying to kind of disarm the preconceptions that people have, get past that um, that wall that everybody puts up on both sides and try and have a conversation that's give and take and tries to figure out, okay, what what is happening here? How do we 
handle this in our lives and what it means for us in our investments or or whatever it may be? So what you're talking about is the biggest challenge that we face in this country right now. It's not our biggest long-term challenge. I mean, it is also a massive long-term challenge, but it's the inability to have real political conversations. And and it's not because humans have changed dramatically because we haven't at all. In fact, part of the problem goes back to biases that are 140,000 years old. But part of what's going on has more to do with um, the social media environment in which we find ourselves. And you, you understand probably, you know, I don't have to tell you too much about that, but you know, we're able to do micromedia bubbling. I can go to the internet, go to Facebook, go to Twitter, and find 100 or 1,000 seemingly very smart people who agree with exactly what I believe. Why do I need to think about anything else? And the second challenge we have has to do with what's happening to our politics. And so what's happening with our politics, and there's three challenges. The second challenge has to do with what's happening to our politics, and that has to do with the um, massive polarization of our political parties, which largely has to do with gerrymandering. And the third thing that's happening, and this is the bigger, broader trend, although social media is a big one as well, has to do with kind of the erosion of a certain type of social fabric we used to have. Right. So when you used to join a union or a bowling league or a PTA or a school or a school team or any organization of any sort, um, for whatever reason, you know, we would elect leaders. Right. So you'd have a leader of your union, leader of your church, leader of your bowling league, leader of your high school hockey team. And to some extent, we understood that that person was the leader for a proper reason. Right. Doesn't mean that they were saints, but it meant that to some extent they could speak for our views or we would listen to them about their views. And so what you ended up having in the United States and many other cultures is a group which the word elite is used, but it's not really elites, but it's a group of people who can understand the needs of the group upon whom they lead, as well as then project that view into a broader circumstance, right? So you used to have union leaders telling union members, we're going to vote for this guy. And by the way, the reason we're doing it is I met with his people and we've extracted these concessions. Or the church would say this, or the bowling league would say that. What's happened now is people have taken and gotten so much personal agency, largely out of social media as well as changing social norms, that we don't believe that our view needs to be tempered or shared or beaten around by other people in conversation, right? So, so you know, if I'm Edward Snowden and I believe that what the NSA is doing is wrong, then I don't think that the laws apply to me. I don't think that the promises I made apply to me. I'm going to release everything I possibly can about the NSA because I've made up the opinion in my mind that doing so is the right thing to do, right? And if you go back and look, for example, at Edward Snowden, he never was on a sports team. He didn't graduate from college. He didn't go through these social fabric structures. That same thing's happened to all of us on a smaller scale. So we have a point of view now, to be clear, 99% of us don't ever make our own minds up. So somehow we got a point of view, either from social media or from our family or something, and now that point of view is the point of view that we hold on to, and we're not going to ever change our mind anymore. So we have a big problem. And back to me, when I try to talk to people, I know that by my presentation of ideas that are anathema to theirs, they literally feel physical pain in their brain, right? So when I tell you... There's a great thing you need to look at called the oatmeal. It's, uh, it's a comic. I don't know the name of the guy who does it. It's absolutely genius. And he has a one called What I'm a, What You're Not Going to Believe What I'm About to Tell You. And he, he tells you that George Washington's teeth were made out of the teeth of slaves. And then he tells you why, you know, as an American, 
that's so anathema to everything we ever heard about him. He had teeth from human beings that were slaves in his mouth, like my George Washington. And there's a neurological response when someone tells you something that's different to what you believe, that it feels like you've been physically assaulted. So the basic answer question, after a long way around, is, you know, I'm not going to be able to change a lot of minds. Now, I have been able to change minds of my parents and others, just the way Trump has behaved as a person, not so much on a policy basis. But my parents who voted for him and others who voted for him have now said, holy moly, this guy, character is destiny. This is the guy who I just, I can't believe he's president of the United States, just by virtuous behavior, not even on a policy perspective. So, so sometimes the truth can enable you, or make, you know, make your point for you. So, Arpi, just in closing, um, looking ahead to this year, you know, what do you see as the main challenges and what do you think are the main threats to what stability there is in this administration? You know, do, do these inquiries, uh, do the teeth get longer? Or does all that go away? Is it just smoke and mirrors? What do you see as being the big opportunities and the big threats in this next year? Well, so let's look at domestically and internationally. So just from a Trump administration perspective. So domestically, he's in a horrible, horrible bind. It's, it, it appears very likely that the Democrats are going to win back the House in which case they will certainly file articles of impeachment. Um, and that will, they will drag him through him and his staff through hearings. They will drag them through discovery. They will be absolutely non-supportive of anything he wants to do. Um, and it will be, um, that's bad, right? It's not just bad for Donald Trump. It's bad for America. Like, I don't want that to happen. I don't want us to be, I'm not one of the people who wants government to be paralyzed. The government will be paralyzed. Just remember, the Senate, of course, then would have to vote on the articles of impeachment to actually kick him out of office. And it's not quite as clear that the Republicans are going to lose the Senate. So I'm not saying he's going to lose the presidency via impeachment, but I'm saying articles of impeachment will very likely be passed. That's one issue. How they correlated to that is Mueller. And what is his investigation to come back with? And I'm actually hoping not that he comes back and has, you know, Trump or Trump Jr. by, by the hooks. Like, I, I don't want that to happen. I also don't think it will happen, at least not the president, maybe Trump Jr. What I'm hoping he comes back is with a very full and clear explanation of violations of law that have occurred over time by people in and around the Trump administration. And we see it and we look at it. And, you know, it's done by a very professional, non- um, emotional set of of investigators, which Mueller is effectively like the archetype for. And we come back and say, okay, here's what happened. Here's what was right or wrong. And we, we deal with it when it comes up. But I don't want it to come back and say, this is that that takes the president down because I think it's good for us. And I also just don't have the sense that will happen. But what's going to be very ha- important when the Mueller report comes out gets back to the point of desensitization. He's going to go back and rehash a whole variety of things, or not rehash, but restate a bunch of things we already knew happened, but he's going to put it within the framework of patterns of behavior, which becomes a legal problem, right? So if you, I suspect he's going to lay out a number of different things, including the interview after he fired um, Comey and the meeting with the Russian ambassador saying he got rid of the problem and a variety of things we all kind of knew piecemeal. And he'll stitch it together and say, this shows a pattern of behavior intended to obstruct justice. And we'll have to look at that and remember that we are desensitized and wonder if we weren't desensitized, how would this look to us then? So I think that he, those are his domestic challenges. And there's others. Um, but no, we're seeing a very, very strong anti-Trump movement growing up, and it's, it's going to make its way into the ballot box. 
internationally, internationally, we have a series of challenges that are staring us in the face, North Korea, Pakistan, the future of ISIS, and, and where that goes, which I'll get back to quickly. And then we also have uh, a broader issue, and we're going to begin to really start seeing the chickens come home to roost on this issue, which is the loss of the, la- the end of Pax Americana. So to be clear, the, the end of Pax Americana took three presidents in concert to, to create. First, George Bush saying, I'm not, in my overt behaviors, I'm not going to follow the international norms and standards that, I help, that America helped build by evading Iraq without Security Council approval, and then by bragging about waterboarding and other things that were violations of the Geneva Convention, things that normally countries do overt, covertly, and I don't have a problem with, but try to make it an overt issue and saying, you know, screw you, we're going to do whatever we want. We're not following the international norms and standards. That's, that was the first problem. Second problem was Obama saying, oh, and the second promise of Pax Americana, first one is that we follow the rules. Second one is that we'll be there when you need us and that we'll live up to our word. We're not going to be there when you need us. We're not going to be a strong power to our friends. And we're not going to live up to our word when we tell people to stop misbehaving. So that was the second kind of, you know, body shot on Pax Americana. And then the third thing, which is, you know, I mean, to me, just throwing the whole thing out is Donald Trump going on and on and on, making points about how American foreign policy needs to be a selfish foreign policy for America, and that that's just the way it's going to be and deal with it. And not realizing that an American foreign policy that takes the interests of other nations in hand while we prosecute our agenda, make our agenda obviously primus, is one that ultimately serves America the best because we then have a group of nations who will listen to us. And so when it really comes down to brass tacks, these people will be there for us. Or over time, they won't abandon us. So when a president runs around and says, we should have taken oil fields in Iraq, or I don't care if North Korea, sorry, I don't care if South Korea and Japan have nuclear weapons. I think the Saudis have nuclear weapons. You know, that kind of thing, which is just giving up America's leadership and, and um, talking about how we're just out to enrich Americans, is dangerous because then people don't follow you. So by long way of saying what is going to happen two years from now, three years from now, and certainly 10 years from now, which is already happening, is our spheres of influence around Asia and around around the entire world are getting weaker and weaker because we're not fighting for them anymore. So that is the longer-term threat, and this president will, will face it too. So he's going to face Putin continuing to misbehave in European elections. He's going to face Putin misbehaving in future American elections, although... I would predict that Putin takes this election cycle off so that he doesn't add so much fuel to the fire. But he will continue to screw around in Europe. China will continue to grow and more influence throughout Africa and ASEAN, build greater trading relationships, and threaten our partners there more and more. So those are the longer-term risks. As I said, short-term, I already listed them. But um, North Korea's got to be solved, and that's a whole other conversation. It's not going to be solved well, not because of Trump. It's just a relatively unsolvable problem. And there's 40,000 or 25,000 warriors from ISIS who no longer have cities that we can bomb with airplanes. So where are they going to go? And a lot will probably absorb back into Saudi and other countries from whence they came, and that's good. But if 0.1% of them decide they want to go be terrorists globally, then we've got a whole new set of bad guys to look out for. LP, uh, I, I, I hate to do it, but we, we've got to wrap it up there. It's it's been it's been fascinating talking to you. you know, I really really appreciate you taking the time to do this. You know, it's it's a tough subject to talk about, and hopefully, you know, the audience can can put aside their own partisan bias and, and just listen to opinions and and you know feel free to discount them. 
but uh, you know, everybody's opinion is valued in this case. We're all kind of searching for an answer. So, so thank you so much for sharing your, your views with us. Before you go, if you could just let people know where they can follow you and find you, that would be great. So I'm sure there'll be plenty of people out there that want to, that want to find out more about your thoughts. Oh, thanks. Um, I, I post once in a while on Twitter at, at RPEddy, and then you can find us via our website, www.ergo.net. And I published a book um, eight, nine months ago that became a bestseller called Warnings. You can find that on Amazon. Just type my name, Arpietti, in and type in Warnings. You can find it at Amazon or most bookstores. And it's a book about understanding threats that are worth considering and, and threats maybe we don't have to be so worried about. I co-authored it with Richard Clark. And it's gotten high praise from Democrats and Republicans alike, from Henry Kissinger to Bill Clinton to Hillary Clinton to uh, – General General Michael Hayden. So it's it's been well received, and I think it's a lot of fun. Well, there we go. F- finally, uh, an oasis of compromise in a polarized world. Oppie, thank you so much for joining us, uh, and I look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks a ton. I really appreciate the effort. Yeah, you know, Grant, it was interesting all the potential pitfalls that RP laid out. It, it it's quite a litany of things that that could go wrong. Uh, I, I might be interested to hear a different view about things that could go right. Well, yeah, I mean, look, Pippa's someone who you know, I've come to rely on for a very balanced view. Um, and so I definitely want to bring her in to get a sense of how she thinks things. I mean, it's there's so much has happened this last year. Uh, it, it's hard to kind of keep up with it. And when you look back, it, it's it's almost impossible to think it, it was just a year ago that we were getting ready for the inauguration. Hey, hi. Welcome back to Events in Finance. It's so great to have you with us again. Oh, you're such a flatterer, sweetie. <laughs> well, look, you know, I, whenever I want to get any idea about what the hell is going on, you're the first person I call. So I figured it, it made sense to give other people the benefit of your experience as well, because there's a lot of people out there kind of shaking their heads um, about the last year. and But it's been a year and things are carrying on as they were. So the, the, the opening question is a simple one. How do you grade President Trump's first year in school slash office so let me start because this is such an emotive topic on both sides uh let me just start by saying you know i come from a family that's just very bipartisan my father served two democrat presidents two republican presidents i happen to have worked for two republican presidents but i've been asked to brief various democratic candidates over my career including at one point um, I was asked to, to brief Hillary Clinton. So my, my approach to this is, you know, the country votes in who they vote in, and we have to analyze what's going on as dispassionately as possible. But yeah. the problem is President Trump makes it impossible to be dispassionate. Right. Uh, and I, I found myself in preparation for talking about this, going back to that famous Arnold Schwarzenegger speech at the 2004 Republican National Convention, you know, where, which is basically called, you know, how you know you're a Republican. And I went through, you know, how do you know you're a Republican? It's like, well, government should be accountable to the people and not the people of the government. And you're like, yeah, okay. If you're a Republican, that's what you buy. And, and yet, even as a Republican, you can still totally object to the president's use of language. You right. can find this unbelievably offensive and appalling you can say Schwarzenegger was right, that a person should be treated as an individual and not as a member of an interest group. And yet, as a woman, be absolutely shocked at the 
at the the language and the treatment of women, minorities, immigrants as well. So I think, you know, we have a very unusual president in that he can be both fulfilling the demands of his supporters and doing it in such a way that he alienates even his own supporters, let alone the right. people that don't support right. right? Even his own supporters. So this makes him really tricky to analyze. So uh, if I were sitting around with uh, the Democratic team talking about this, I would say, okay, guys, let's just get down to brass facts. If the Democrats want to go up against this guy and win, which you know you would think would be totally easy given what's going on, and yet they can't even figure out what candidate they're fielding, and we're kind of running out of time at this point. They should have a better idea of who are they going to field against this guy. So here's what I would say. I would say the S&P is up 20.4%. That's a value of like $4 trillion. And we know from all the analysis of politics that this matters. GDP has grown at like 3% for the last couple quarters. And, you know, overall, the growth is looking good. Unemployment is at a 17-year low. And manufacturing jobs have rebounded to the levels of about 2012-2014. So all of that has to be taken into consideration. Now, by the way, I don't attribute Trump with credit for much of that. I, I might say some of it was the tax cut, the S&P, I'll give a little credit for the tax cut, but things like the manufacturing jobs come home. I mean, Grant, you know, I was writing about that way before he was even a candidate. Yeah, absolutely. So to be fair, presidents are entitled to their luck and the president is lucky on this point. But I, the fact is presidents get credit for what occurs on their watch. So this is what we've got. Then you shift from that to what did he promise and what has he delivered? And, you know, you've got things, again, regardless of your position on these issues, he said he'd build a wall. Well, you know, you got pictures in the, in the press of he's looking at prototypes of walls. And so people are going, oh my gosh, this is actually happening. You know, he said he'd introduce a temporary ban on people of the Islamic faith or from Islamic countries he has managed to do that. He said he'd bring manufacturing jobs back. Again, I don't give him credit for that, but he, it's happening. Uh, the whole business of withdrawing from NAFTA and TPP, the trade negotiations, frankly, it's not even in his bailiwick. Congress has to do it because it's law under the, con the domain of Congress. But the fact is the headlines have all read that it's happening. Um, he said he'd renegotiate the Iran deal. That seems to be underway. He said he'd cut taxes. That has already happened. There, I'll put one more on the table. You know, for a president who said he wasn't going to be active on foreign policy, he did say that he did say that he would, you know, deal with ISIS. And in a way, he outsourced it. He told the Russians to go deal with it, and frankly, they have been dealing with it, thus fulfilling two of those requirements from his point of view. He's got himself a Supreme Court justice, which has shifted the balance of power on the court. So the one thing that he didn't do that he promised to do was the repeal of Obamacare. And he said he'd replace it with a market-based alternative. But, you know, to be honest, that list in the first year is really uh, an extraordinary list. And it's very hard to just write him off as, 
you know, what he sounds like, which is, you know, the media is right. They talk about he's he's a psycho and he's out of control. He's totally unhinged. And he's just kind of sleazy in the way he talks about things. So what's my conclusion from all that? I have to say, I think the reason he got elected was a lot of people wanted to go to war with the entire establishment of Washington, years of centralization of power, this idea that Washington was becoming a kind of its own thing separate from the rest of the country. And I kind of asked myself, is there a way that you could, you know, constrain Washington, reform it, change it, make it like what Schwarzenegger was appealing to in that 2004 speech in a polite and nice way? Could you do it within the normal bounds? And I think it's an interesting question. Maybe the answer is no. Maybe the only kind of way that you could do it is to have a kind of barbarian at the gates who, who says, I'm just burning the whole thing to the ground. And so it makes it impossible for people to analyze his success or failure because it's not just trying to reform the thing within its own context. He's all about destroying the entire structure. And the fact is Americans are very loyal to their constitution. And the fact is the president has been behaving as if he thought what he was walking into was a monarchy when in fact it's a constitutional presidency. And I think that this is what, at the heart of it, makes it so difficult to answer the question that you've asked. I guess as you're as we're a year in, um, and you know, hearing more accounts of, such as Michael Wolff's book, where he kind of paints a picture of, of almost utter chaos. I, I guess I'd, I'm curious your view about the purposefulness of of the communications um, we hear from the White House, because as you point out, there there is a you can draw a direct line between the communications and the policy goals, um, but it, it, is this part of a coordinated effort, or, or I'm curious how you, how you see that uh, all playing out. Yeah, well, you know, it's again so easy to presume that every president who enters the White House understands that it's a it's a piece of machinery. It it has process. It has you know different parts of the office and that you are given the keys to this kind of combine harvester and you, you put it to work. But what we have is a president who says, well, I don't give a darn. I, I don't recognize that it is a machine. I'm just here to burn everything down. And so the process part, he's not really participating in. And everyone I know in the White House has been like, you know, he doesn't come to the meetings uh, he's not in taking the morning briefings in that basically Mike Pence is effectively acting as the president because the president kind of just wanders in and wanders out. It's not, he doesn't see that this is a machine that he should be driving. His view is I'm trying to destroy the whole thing, this machine included. So when you look at it that way, it makes sense that there's this erratic, uh, unmanaged quality to it. Um, and also interesting that you ask the question, who is managing all this? And I would say not only Mike Pence, but basically we have three Marines. We have, um, we have, uh, you know, the, th the, the three Marines who were surrounding the president 
all of whom have worked together for a very long time, right? We have Mattis, we have Kelly, and we have Duncan. And they can practically communicate telepathically. They all know each other so well. So, you know, I live in London, and I spend a, time, a lot of time internationally. One of the views internationally is that the United States is basically being run by a military junta. And luckily, it's a benevolent military junta. <laughs> but the rest of the world is kind of like amazingly grateful that the U.S. has a military junta in place, which is just so mind-blowing as a concept. Um, and I do think it's very interesting when, when General Mattis in particular has been interviewed and he's asked, you know, how do you manage Donald Trump? And, you know, he's, he's a very, um, you know, he, he's a very aggressive Marine, but equally he's a super thoughtful scholarly man. So what I hear is that the way Mattis manages Trump is the way he manages anyone who is in his way, which is he knocks them over and flattens them on the floor he leaps onto their chest and he stays there calmly explaining why his view <laughs> is right until the other guy concedes, right? That's how Mattis right. does stuff. And, and he's hugely respected in the military community and frankly, even more broadly for this quality. So when you say, you know, how is the White House, how is it running? I'm like, well, we have never seen it run like this before. There is no precedent for how this is occurring. Well, so, so, so let's bring it back to um, to the markets because uh, the market that, that candidate Trump called the big, fat, juicy bubble, he's now tweeting pretty much daily about new record highs and the, the Dow wouldn't be where it was if it wasn't for me and $4 trillion of increased of, of added wealth. What do you see as the likely path of markets in the next, um, you know, six to twelve months? Because I, I know you're in the kind of melt-up camp, and you have been. You've been right about that for for the last six months. But do you fear that we're coming to the end of that melt-up, or do you think it's just beginning? So, first thing is, as a person who's worked in the White House and worked, you know, on trading floors, running strategy for big investment banks. The most important thing is that you've got to leave aside your emotional response to a, to the politicians in order to have a clear view. Now, it's um, the President Trump makes it nigh on impossible for anybody <laughs> to do, but <laughs> this is really important because the president does not define the economy, and it never has. By the way, no president chooses or or you know it says this is what's going to happen. No, they all do their level best to try to create the economic framework to, to set the rules, the laws, the policies in a particular direction, but they have no control about what markets are doing. And, you know, they get in big trouble all the time by thinking they have control. And almost every president at some point ends up either him or his staff conceding that the markets are bigger than they are. So... Right now, you know, it's kind of like riding a tiger. I think it's interesting the president trying to take credit for all this stuff the markets are doing, but, you know, that can turn on him in a second. So I separate all that out and I say, okay, here's the bottom line. Globally, the United States is performing better than any other part of the world. It has entered a period of, of extraordinary innovation I believe that we are in the next industrial revolution, which is 
on such an epic scale, I can hardly begin to tell you. And I know because I'm, I'm in it myself. I created a company that manufactures commercial drones. So I'm in AI, I'm in automation, I'm in robotics. And I can see that the cost savings from augmenting humans with all that stuff is just mind-blowing. But that's not because of the president. That's just happening. So I continue to be very bullish about innovation and the process of creative destruction. I'm incredibly confident in my faith and belief in human beings and their ability to innovate under almost any conditions. And that the biggest problem we have in the U.S. and, frankly, the world economy is just masses and masses of latent, untapped human potential. And every time we develop that, the economy gets better. The U.S. happens to be pretty good at that, although there's still way too many people left behind in that process. So I'm not saying everybody is a beneficiary. But at any rate, as industrial countries go, the U.S. is top of the list. And as emerging markets go, weirdly, you know, Mexico is performing on all engines. It's right next door. You put those two together, and in spite of the wall, you have one of the most dynamic locations on the entire planet. So I continue to be optimistic. I also think inflation is just starting. I think people have not understood what that means. We have a, at least two generations now that have no memory of inflation. So when they see that start, they're like, whoa, this is good. You know, asset prices are rising. I'm happy about that. They don't know where that goes. So I can see why the optimism will persist, even though some of us old folks like you and me, we're like, wait, wait, inflation's not good. It's going to be a problem eventually, but emphasis on eventually. So I think it's quite possible that you can have a president that a lot of people truly detest and yet they'll be wrong if they try to be short the stock market because the president is not the stock market. Right. He just isn't. Yeah, no. yeah, yeah it's a good point. You know, I know it's it's such mind-blowing stuff and it, by the way, you know, as a person who's who's commenting on all this, it's it's hard for me too. I mean, you know, it's because, you know, the minute you say anything that's favorable, then, you know, you're in trouble. And the minute you say anything that's not favorable, you're in trouble. So I'd love to finish this podcast by saying that civil society requires civil dialogue. You know, if we want to have a proper body politic, then we have to be part of the body. We can't just say, if I don't, if you're, if I don't agree with you, I'm not going to talk to you. If you've taken this position, you must be an idiot. In other words, it's a bit, we are the problem. It's not only that the president is the problem, the public, we are also the problem. And I, I think that's the thing everybody needs to think about, whether you're left or right, you know, whatever your views on the market is, what do you personally need to do in order to s repair and sew back, stitch back together again the civil society we used to have and that we kind of all really want because that isn't going to come from an announcement from the White House. That can only come from all of us as individuals taking personal actions. And, and that's why when you asked me to talk on this, I thought, you know, I hate this subject because I get beaten up on both sides. But I feel a responsibility to try to stitch back together again 
the civil society that that I used to know and I want to be part of. Well, I mean, that's that's so perfectly put. Um, I don't want to ruin it by saying anything of my own, other than maybe Malmgren twenty twenty. Uh, let me know if you need a campaign yeah. manager because <laughs> if if that's just your stump speech, I think you've got a shot, frankly. But. Um, People, th- thank you so much. I mean, one of the reasons I, I was so desperate to get you on for this topic was that balance. Uh, you know, you and I have talked about this plenty of times, and it's always such a fascinating conversation. Um, and I would just hope that the audience listens to that and, and puts aside bias on both sides and just and just sits down and thinks about the issues. So, look, thank you so much um, for your time and your insight. And perhaps for those uh, fans of Venture and Finance who aren't familiar with you, A, shame on them, but B, perhaps you could let them know how they can, uh, where they can find you and, and follow you on Twitter because um, it's something they should all definitely do. Oh, you're so kind. You're so kind. Well, I'm out there. I'm under Dr. Pippa M. I would have put Pippa M on Twitter, but then you just get photographs of the sister of the Queen <laughs> of England. And I thought, that's not the look I'm looking for here. So Dr. Pippa M, and I'm on Twitter and Facebook. And I do put stuff up on LinkedIn. I find that's a great place because you can say what you want without some editor saying, no, you can't say that. So I'd love to interact. Whoever wants to interface, come chat. Fantastic. Pippa, as always, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. And I hope uh, I hope you and I can have another drink and a conversation about this in person soon. Fab. Pippa really has become one of my go-to people for any time I want to understand what the hell's going on in Washington because she understands it better than most and her time in financial markets. As she puts it, she speaks Federation and Klingon. So to me, she's uh, such a valuable resource and it's always a pleasure to talk to her. Well, that's uh, that's it for this week, sadly. Um, before we go, uh, the legal disclaimer, which uh, one of these days I'm going to get James to play the audio speed it up, like those T's and C's. Anything you heard on this episode should not be considered as trading advice. These are our opinions and the opinions of our contributors. So please do your fundamental research, chart your technicals, place your stops, and always trade responsibly. Next week's feature segment is on China. Now that the plenum's out of the way and politics has kind of calmed down there a bit, Where's their economy actually going and what does it mean for investors around the world? Yes, indeed. We'll be back on China next week. In the meantime, if you've got an interesting question about this week's show, then we would love to hear it. Please send us an email or voice note uh, or hate mail if you're a Bitcoin addict at podcast at realvision.com. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today, please subscribe to us on iTunes. And James, what do they have to do? Leave some reviews. Always Uh, reviews. Yes, reviews. Yes, reviews. Actually, maybe not this week. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> maybe, no, maybe wait till next week be, okay badgers no no reviews please no reviews <laughs> to keep up to date with the latest interviews research publications and of course podcast episodes please follow us on twitter at real vision we're also at facebook uh, and linkedin just search for real vision you'll you'll find some good stuff and you can follow me on twitter at ttmygh you can follow me like james at aces Rose. and you can follow me at aif james That's it from us. We will see you next week. Thank you so much for listening. Boom. And we're out.